pray. Gracious Father, we pray and ask that you would fulfill the longing of that song, the desire that we just expressed and sang about, that we would indeed know Christ and know him more, that we would know him as Lord and as we sang as King of my soul, that we would grasp something of his glory, that we would understand more fully the depths of his grace and his mercy, his victory over, over sin and death. And God, if, if what we just sang is not really the expression of our hearts, pray that you would reveal that as well and that you would change us. That by the ministry of your word and by the power of your spirit, that you would give all of us a renewed hunger and a thirst for you. That we would long to know Christ and to walk in his ways and to follow him and to worship in spirit and in truth. Lord, we pray that your work would do its, uh, that your word would do your work this morning. Lord, by the, by the power of your spirit, change us. And we pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. If you would please be seated and open once again to the book of Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. The church is glorious. The bride of Christ is a glorious and beautiful thing. But to our way of thinking... It often looks like a mess. We are a messy people. We are, it's true, we're maturing and we are growing in Christ, but we are often still selfish. We are often easily distracted. We are often tempted and enticed to leave our first love, which is Jesus Christ Himself, we're tempted to run away from Christ and to pursue the most ridiculous of idols. Now, if that piques your curiosity, come back next week. Uh, our brother Ray Bartanian, he's going to be preaching next Sunday as we get into the seven letters to the seven churches. He's going to talk a lot more about the church at Ephesus and how they left their first love and what a tragedy that is. So come back next week for that. But the point is, as we wade into our text for this morning, we need to remember that the children of God, we the people of God, we have been transformed and transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. And yet, and yet, it seems like for the people of God, trouble abounds. Trouble abounds for those who are in Christ, for those who are a part of His kingdom. Lots of trouble. Physical trouble, medical trouble, relational trouble, financial trouble, work trouble, family trouble, car trouble, lots of trouble for us to encounter. And at times it is so easy to forget who and what we actually are. Who and what we actually are. We are beloved, adopted children of God. And so with that in mind, with that just... Super brief introduction. Look again at Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. John writes, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. 
was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So please note this on your outline in this concise introduction after a prologue. That was verses one to three. We talked about that several weeks ago. And after a greeting, that was verses four to eight. Brother Matt preached on that last week. John now explains uh, who he is, what he is, where he is and why he's there. And here's the great thing about it. Jesus is at the heart of it all. Jesus is at the center of it all. So So who is this that is recording this revelation? You already know the answer. Verse 9 begins, I, John. And we've noted this in previous weeks. This is John the Apostle. This is John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. You say, okay, great. But what does John call himself here? How does John refer to himself? He writes, I, John, your brother and partner. This is so good. John places himself on the same level, the exact same level as his readers. He does not boast in himself as the last living apostle. He does not boast in himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. In fact, that that term is not a boast. That is a term of great humility as he places himself beneath the Savior who loved him. No, here John says again in humility, I am your brother. I am your partner. We are in Christ together. We are in this together. You say, in what together? Verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So, yes, yes, the first word listed there, tribulation. Yes, I am your brother and partner first in the tribulation, in the affliction and the difficulty and the persecution and the trouble that comes from knowing and following Jesus. And this should not, this is not a surprise to you. It should not be a surprise to any of us if you spent any time reading the Gospels. Because Jesus said lots of things like in John 16, 33, said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace in the world. You will have, same word, tribulation. But then Jesus says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So John, along with his readers, they were experiencing The persecution, the tribulation that comes from knowing Jesus as Lord, from knowing Jesus as King of my soul. Listen, as an apostle, as a leader in the church, John is not exempt from this. He's a part of it. He's a part of it. So he is a brother and partner in the tribulation. And then he writes next, he is also a brother and partner in the kingdom. Yes, John and the people that he's writing to, they are citizens of Christ's kingdom right now. This world is not our home. We, our citizenship is in heaven and we belong to that kingdom. Christ is our King now and forever. And so we experience tribulation and we are citizens of Christ's kingdom. And yet the full glory of Christ's rule has not yet been 
revealed. It has not yet been realized. And so this explains now the third category, the third thing that John talks about is he identifies with his, his, his readers in verse nine. He says, I'm also your brother and your, and your partner in patient endurance. Patient, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, in the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Let me tell you something. That's where you live. That's where you live. That's where I live. If you look up your name, your address is right there. Patient endurance. That's you. That's where you live if you are in Christ. That's the reality for us each and every day. What are we doing? Patiently enduring. Patiently enduring. Following Christ, choosing to walk by faith, submitting to God in His timing, rejoicing in the gifts and the privileges and the love that God has shown us thus far, and longing and hoping for what is yet to come. So that's who John is. That's what John is. Next, where is John? And why is he there? Well, at the end of verse 9, he writes, he was on the island called Patmos, on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, on the screens, um, you can see a map showing where Patmos is, was and is uh, located. Patmos is a tiny island uh, in the Aegean Sea. Uh, it's, it's not big. It's about 10 miles long. It's about 6 miles wide. It is a rocky, volcanic island. It is a place where Rome would send people off into exile. That's, that's where John is. He is off in exile, meaning John did not choose to go to Patmos. I mean, it was not his idea. John did not wake up one morning and think, I'll go do some church planting work in Patmos. I'll go lead a VBS outreach program in, 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 in Patmos. He did not do that. He did not say that. He was banished there for his faith. Because remember that as Christianity continued to grow and spread, Rome became more and more suspicious of it and antagonistic to it. Uh, Judaism was tolerated by the Roman government, but it became evident over time, especially at the protest of the Jews, that Christianity, it was not just another branch of Judaism. No, it claimed to be the fulfillment of Judaism with a living king, King Jesus. And Christians would not worship the emperor. They were decidedly anti-emperor worship. We would not burn incense to Caesar. We refused to say that Caesar is Lord. And so persecution began to spread and to thrive throughout the Roman Empire. And so, at least for a time, John this recognized, well-known leader, last living apostle in the church, John, was sentenced to exile on the island of Patmos. And, as only God can do, God did not waste this time in John's life. This was not plan B in the economy of God. God had a plan and a purpose, and it was so 
good. Uh, it was good for John that he would be in exile on the island of Patmos if it would mean that he would receive this revelation of Jesus Christ. It was a good thing for John that he would be here because it was here that God would give John this most amazing, most spectacular, most humbling, awe-inspiring, earth-shaking revelation of Jesus Christ. Think about that the next time that God interrupts your plans. Think about that the next time that God puts you in unexpected timeout that you did not see coming. Think about that the next time persecution or trouble comes and it seems to distort your plans and what you thought was going to happen. God, God still knows what He's doing. God still knows what is best for every single one of His children and He has a plan to grow and to bless His people. And so, John now records the first vision that he is given, this first vision in this wonderful letter. Look at verse 10. John writes now, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Stop there for a moment. Note this on your outline. Number one. Here, John, he is in the Spirit. That is, he is submitted to the Holy Spirit, walking in the Spirit. It is, it is on a Sunday, the Lord's Day, the day of Christ's resurrection, when he heard the powerful voice of Christ, I love this, behind him, behind him. Now, we'll get to the behind him in just a moment, but first, it's significant how John emphasizes that he was in the Spirit. Because it, what does this do for us? Well, it, it emphasizes what Brother Matt talked about last week. How we see the fullness of the Trinity and will see the fullness of the Trinity throughout this revelation. That we here see that the Spirit is moving and working, continuing to move and to work in John's life. That he is in the Spirit, submitted to the Spirit. That is part Part of God's plan in giving this, this revelation. So John is in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. He is in exile. He is worshiping his Savior. It is the day that the early church remembered and celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And John hears a loud voice behind him. And it sounds, it is like a trumpet. It is not a trumpet, but John says it is like a trumpet and it is loud. And we should prepare ourselves for the fact that the word loud is going to be a recurring theme in the book of Revelation. Uh, much of what happens in this book is loud. It is a loud book. The worship of heaven is often described as loud. Uh, when angels speak, we will see they often speak loudly. In chapter 5, John is going to weep. How is he going to weep? Loudly. Most, I, I'm tempted to say all, almost all of the proclamations and declarations made concerning Christ and his kingdom in this revelation, you guessed it, are loud. Loud is a key theme of the book of Revelation. You think, why? Why does it matter? Why does it matter that here Jesus' voice is behind him like a trumpet loud? The volume makes a point. The volume makes a point. The volume speaks to the urgency of the message that is given. The volume testifies to the fact that you need 
to hear this. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. You need to hear this. And so it is loud. You cannot safely ignore what is presented and what is declared here. This demands your attention. So yes, it is loud. And praise God that it is. Praise God that it is because you and I are so often hard of hearing. We are. We are hard of We are tempted to ignore what is most important. We are tempted to give our ears and our time and our attention to what is trivial. So this is loud. It calls out for your attention. Jesus' voice here is loud. It grabs John's attention. It probably startled John. And so what does this voice first say to John? Even before John turns around to see anything, what does this voice say to John? What is the first thing in this book that Jesus says in this revelation? What's the first thing that Jesus says to John? John... It's so nice to see you again. It's Jesus. You remember me, right? Jesus. No. No. That's, that's not what we see here. What is the first thing that this voice says to John? And it is an imperative command. Jesus gets right down to business. Look again at verse 11. This voice is saying, Write what you see in a book. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Noted on your outline, the very first command given to John is to write what he sees, and to send it to seven churches in Asia Minor. And this is truth that is helpful for and applicable to Every church, every believer, every local body. The priority here, as Jesus speaks, is to write for John to be faithful to what Jesus will entrust to him. John is here explicitly told to write what he sees. Now, you'll notice that John will also write what he hears. Is that a contradiction? No, of of course not. The hearing is involved with the seeing. But why does Jesus emphasize that John is to write what he sees? Because this is, as we've said in previous weeks, much of this letter is apocalyptic literature, which, which relies upon beautiful, gorgeous, graphic, powerful, Powerful, descriptive imagery and, and symbolism that is meant to grab your attention and to convey and to teach dramatic, powerful truth. This is meant to show us, yes, the power, the grace, the glory, the might, the judgment, the authority, the overwhelming victory of Jesus Christ. John is going to see this. Yes, he's going to hear it, he's going to see it, and he's going to faithfully record and write what he sees. And what's so interesting about this, this is the first of 12 commands that John is going to receive to write. 12 times uh, God, Christ, is going to speak to John saying, write this down, write this down. Be faithful to record this, John. Write this down. This is a benefit for my people, John. Write this down. Now, specifically, 
This revelation was first given, as you know, to seven churches in in Asia, uh, Asia Minor. Again, as you can see from the map on the screens, Jesus is going to address these seven churches in the order that this letter would have been delivered to them. So the letter would have traveled uh, by boat from Patmos to Miletus. And yes, it's the same Miletus that Paul visited in Acts 20. And then from Miletus, the letter would have gone first to Ephesus, and then to Smyrna, then to Pergamum, then to Thyatira, then to Sardis, then to Philadelphia, and then lastly to Laodicea. You say, that's awesome. This book is their problem, not mine. Not so fast. Uh, because as, as, as our brother Matt mentioned last week, uh, with this being given to seven churches. This idea of seven speaks of fullness and, 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 and to completion. This is not just to these seven churches, but it is revelation that is beneficial to all the churches of all of the time. You say, how can you be so sure? Here's how we can be absolutely certain of this. Um, uh, there will be uh, in every single letter, in every single word of exhortation and encouragement that Jesus gives to these seven churches, this line will appear. Jesus will say in every one of these letters, quote, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. <laughs> Do you have ears to hear? You need this. You need this. You need these seven letters to these seven Churches, if you have understanding, if you have spiritual life and insight, you need to benefit from what is written here. So John hears this voice like a trumpet. He hears this command to write, but remember, this voice has come from where? It's come from behind, behind John. And so, who is talking to me, John? Who is this? Who is this voice? What, what is the source? Who does this voice belong to? Well, John needs to turn around to see exactly who's speaking to him. And you would think that when he turns around, the first thing he would see would be the one who is talking to him, but you would be wrong. That's not the first thing that John sees when he turns around. He sees something else first. Look again at verse 12. John writes, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. What is this? Note this on your outline. Number three, before John sees the one speaking to him, God wants him to see the setting, the context, the environment surrounding this one who is speaking. What a... What a strange turn of events. You would think that John would immediately behold the one who is speaking, and yet he turns and he sees seven golden lampstands. What are these lampstands? What do they represent? Why are they golden? Why are they so important that John first records the reality and the presence of these seven golden lampstands? Well, thankfully, and I love this about the book of Revelation, often, not always, but often, the imagery and the symbolism is explained within the book. So often, if you will keep reading in the book of Revelation, John will 
explain the imagery and the symbolism. It will be given to him, and that is a beautiful and a wonderful thing. And in just a few verses, we'll read this at the end of verse 20. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So these seven golden lampstands, what do they represent? They represent the seven churches. And, again, as we talked about last week, not only these seven churches, but really all true churches. Whatever this vision means, it has importance and significance to every church. God has something important here for all of his people to see. And what an appropriate symbol for the church. A lampstand, which is to give off light. Lampstands, which were an important item used for worship in the temple of God. Golden lampstands, because they are precious and they are valuable in God's sight. Remember, it was Jesus who would say to his disciples in Matthew 5, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are lights reflecting the true light, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, picked up on this same imagery when he wrote in Philippians 2.14, saying, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. There it is. We are to shine as lights in the world. So what an appropriate image for God to choose to represent His church, His people. So there is John. He is hearing this voice commanding him to write. He sees the reality of these seven lampstands, these seven churches. And then when he turns around, he beholds these lampstands. And what does he see next? Verse 13. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Noted on your outline, number four, this is so important. Jesus is not far away. Jesus is not distant from his church. He is in the very midst of his bride. He is in the midst of his people. And if you, if you know anything about the church in general or about these uh, seven churches in particular, then you know that this is something. <laughs> this is something. This is precious truth to be celebrated and to be rejoiced over because most of these churches had serious sins and problems and issues that needed to be repented of, that needed to be addressed. Ephesus, uh, again, Ray will be preaching on this next week. Ephesus had done what? They had abandoned their, their first love. Jesus Christ, Pergamum, was playing around with false teaching, was, was turning a blind eye to false teaching and giving room for false teachers. Thyatira was allowing idolatry to thrive and to move and to permeate throughout the church. Uh, uh, the church of Sardis was sleepy, lazy, and lethargic. And, and with the church at Laodicea, Jesus is depicted as 
outside of his own church, of Laodicea. He's outside. He's knocking at the door of his own church. Are you kidding me? Right? These, these are the churches. These are just some of the issues. But I wonder, what kinds of issues does the Lord Jesus Christ see here at Harbor Shores Church, not in Asia Minor, minor, but on the border of Cicero and Noblesville. What, what is Jesus' message to us? What does Jesus want us to see about ourselves and His glory through these seven letters? Again, I can't preach that sermon today. Those are, that's coming, but for this morning, the point is this, brothers and sisters. Jesus has not abandoned his church. And he never will. He never will. In spite of all her problems, all her issues, Jesus loves his church. And he loves his church with a fierce, purifying kind of love. Jesus is not distant. He is not nonchalant. He is not distracted. He is present. He is present in and among his people. This is the picture of Jesus that John needed to see. This is the picture of Jesus that the seven, that these seven churches need to see. This is the picture of Christ that we need to see as well. So, what about this one like a son of man? Well, this is interesting. That term, one like a son of man, it comes from Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 where Daniel sees a vision of the Messiah, of, of, of this coming one like a son of man who comes to the Father, who comes to God, the ancient of days. And this one like a son of man, he is given an eternal glorious kingdom that is made up of all peoples and nations and languages. And this title, son of man, it is one that Jesus loved to use for himself. Jesus loved to speak of himself. It's, it, it's especially recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, how Jesus Jesus loved to refer to himself and talk about himself as the Son of Man. But again, the the issue is, the question here is, how is Jesus presented here? How is he dressed? What is he showing? What does this mean for his bride, his church, that he is in the midst of? Look again at the end of verse 13. We see that Jesus is clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head are white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Noted on your outline, this is obviously a glorious picture of Christ. It is meant to inspire reverence, fear, worship, confidence, and trust. Trust Trust in the power, in the majesty, in the sovereign authority of Jesus. So let's, 
Let's unpack this piece by piece for just a moment. First, the clothing. The clothing. Note it on your outline. Jesus wears a long robe and golden sash, signifying, among other things, his priestly interceding work. Now, it is true, it is true that long robes were worn by royalty, even by prophets. But the robe, combined with the sash, seems to emphasize Jesus' role as priest. Listen, as the one who is priest and sacrifice, as the one who offered up himself, as the one who continues to pray for us and to intercede for us. I think John MacArthur explains this well in his commentary. He writes, the word translated robe was used used most frequently in six of its seven occurrences in the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to describe the robe worn by the high priest. While Christ is biblically presented as prophet and king and his majesty and dignity emphasized, the robe here pictures Christ in his role as the great high priest of his people. That he was girded across his chest with a golden sash reinforces that interpretation since the high priest in the Old Testament wore such a sash. So why the robe? Why the sash? Because God wants his people to be continually reminded of the fact that Jesus is our sympathetic high priest. He is our faithful high priest. He is, yes, the sacrifice for our sins. Yes, he is our peace. Yes, he is the one who lives to plead the merits of his blood for us. And brothers and sisters, in just a few moments, we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper where we will eat the bread and the cup. And these are yet again a reminder to us of the sufficiency of Jesus' life and death and resurrection for us. It is a reminder of what Christ is doing, pleading, praying for us. It is a reminder of His soon return. Jesus not only died for us, He lives for us to pray for us and to make intercession on our behalf. So next, we should consider then The person of Christ, the person of Christ, these personal descriptions of the Lord Jesus Christ here. We see white, radiant hair, eyes like a burning fire, feet like burnished bronze just out of a blazing furnace. These testify to Jesus' perfect purity and to his commitment to purify his people. I mean, the, the point is so clear here. Listen, there is no blemish in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no foolishness in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no uh, unsound judgment or, or wrong thinking or misguided emotions or evil intentions. No, he is radiant in his righteousness. Listen, even his feet, even his feet, which we usually think of our, our, our feet as being the dirty part of us that nobody wants to touch, nobody wants to, nobody, nobody even wants to see our feet. Uh, and yet even with Christ, how are his feet displayed like they are just out of the furnace, that they are bronze, that they are perfect, that they are just perfectly refined and blazing in glory. That's how he is portrayed. He is wise. He is discerning in his judgments. His eyes 
penetrate to the heart of every matter. With them being like a flame of fire, there is a piercing clarity to his gaze when he sets his eyes upon his church. And brothers and sisters, we will see this in the seven letters to the churches because there is at least one thing that Jesus says to every single church. Do you know what it is? Jesus says two words to every single church and it's this. I know. I know. That's how it always begins with Jesus addressing his church. I know. You're not fooling him. He's not misled. He's not deceived. He sees to the heart of his bride. He sees to the heart of his people. Jesus knows. He always knows the condition of his people. And I love this. He always knows what his people need. And he will provide. And he will give. And he will warn. And he will plead. And he will work. He is glorious. And so, even this morning, as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we should be reminded of this. That as we sit here this morning, Jesus sees. And he still says those two words. I know. I know. I know the condition of your heart. I know the sin that still needs to be repented of. And, brothers and sisters, how eager and joyous and happy we should be to come to Christ. And to repent gladly and joyfully, not reluctantly, not reluctantly. Don't, don't repent reluctantly, R- repent joyfully, for He is the one who died for you, who died to cleanse you from the very sin that you're tempted to still cling to. And, and He, and He loves you and He longs to set you free from that. So, repent joyfully, confess sin joyfully, for He is the one who lives for you, which we will come to in, in just a moment. So Jesus offers grace. He offers cleansing. He offers such abundant uh, forgiveness to, to his people. So next, we should consider Jesus' voice. At the end of verse 15, John records that his voice was like the roar of many waters. Noted on your outline, Jesus' voice is powerful. It is authoritative in its sovereign might. In other words, Niagara Falls ain't got nothing on Jesus. Alright, if you've been to Niagara Falls and just the sound of the thousands of gallons just rushing over, it's nothing compared to the glory and the majesty and the authority of the voice of Christ. And what's so interesting is that in Ezekiel chapter 43, the coming of the glory of God is described in the exact same way. And in, in, we read this in Ezekiel 43 verse 2. It says, And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. Isn't that interesting that Jesus speaks with a voice that sounds like the coming of the glory of God? How can that be? Because he is God. He is the glory of God. He is divine. And so he speaks with divine authority. No one can successfully oppose his word. He should be trusted. He should be believed. He should be worshiped. Next, in verse 16, we read, In his right hand, he held seven stars. Please note this on your outline. 
In Jesus' right hand, he holds the angels. That's, that's um, the messengers, the messengers, those who lead and communicate truth to his people. See, this is another situation where the meaning of these seven stars, like the meaning of the seven golden lampstands, it's explained in verse 20. So again, I direct your attention to verse 20, where we read, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand. So here's Jesus explaining what this means. And the seven golden lampstands, he says, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, this word translated as angels, it can also be translated as, and it literally means messengers, messengers. Uh, In the Moody Bible Commentary, I think they give a good explanation as to why this word should be understood as messengers. Writes, quote, this is preferred as the word most likely refers to responsible human leaders of these churches as held in the hand of God during perilous times rather than to spirits. These messengers appeared to have responsibility for the oversight of the church, making it unlikely that these are angels, and it is equally unlikely that God would use a human agent, John, to communicate with angelic beings. So I think the point here, though, is that Jesus is showing and explaining, listen, not only his sovereignty and involvement in general over the church, but in particular with the church. That that even those who lead and who speak and who function as messengers within the church, they are not outside of the sovereign plan of God. There is no aspect of the church that is outside of Jesus' care and attention, which means, brothers and sisters, at all times, we rest in the care of Christ. We rest in His love for us. We rest continually in the fact that we are not far from Him, but He is always in the midst of, of His people. And so next, we read in verse 16 then, that from His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Noted on your outline, the word of Christ, it is able to both judge and destroy as well as save and protect. And we will see this. We will see this again and again and again throughout this revelation, that the enemies of Christ, those who hate him, those who reject him, they will be judged. They will be sentenced. They will be destroyed and condemned by the power of his word. It will happen. And... The people of God, the bride of Christ, those who love him, they will be protected, healed, nourished, preserved. How? By his gracious word, by his command, by the work of his spirit. Listen, the people of God have every reason to be confident in the word of Christ. The people of God have every reason to trust in Jesus' word and in his love and in his good designs for his people. Lastly, verse 16 describes the overall face of Jesus, saying his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Noted on your outline, the point here is that the glory of Jesus, it is overwhelmingly strong. It cannot be hidden. 
It cannot be lessened. Can you, can you think of a stronger comparison? Can you think of something that is brighter, that is more radiant than the sun shining in its strength? Not on a day like today when Canada has blessed us with all of the smoke and all of the things that are, that are moving down. No, not, but on a day when the sun is shining clear in the sky in its full strength. Is there anything that compares to that? Listen, the sun is about 93 million miles away from the earth and it is still blinding to us. What would it be like to be right up against it? That is John's point. That is what it's like to come face to face with the glory of Christ. It's being just an inch from the sun. We can't handle it 93 million miles away. And so this is why John responds as he does. This is why we read what we read next. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. You cannot safely take in the glory of God on your own. You cannot safely stand in the presence of the glory of God on your own. That is a death sentence. And, 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 and by the way, what John models for us here, what he shows us here, this is the common response of everyone who encounters the living, glorious God. This was the experience of Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Manoah, Job, Peter, Paul, and now John here. Why? Because beholding the glory of God does at least two things. Number one, it reveals the glory of God and it reveals our unworthiness. It reveals our sinfulness. It, it, it magnifies His majestic holiness. But brothers and sisters, the point is, that's not where the text ends. Thankfully, that's not how it ends. That John falls down and dies and, and is incinerated. End of revelation. No, no, there's good news, gracious, glorious, good news, because what follows next, it amplifies the grace of Christ. It amplifies the kindness and the beautiful victory of Jesus over sin and death, over our fear and our shame. So look at the second half now of verse 17. It says, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, and these are good words, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Noted on your outline as the one who is life, as the one who died and rose, as the one who has the keys. That is a way to express authority over, complete authority over. Jesus has authority over death itself. He has authority over the domain of death. That is Hades. The point is Jesus alone puts an end to our fear. Jesus alone puts an end to our fear. There is nobody qualified to talk about death and life like Jesus Christ. Nobody. 
There's nobody qualified. There's nobody who has such a perfect, vast, complete knowledge of life and death like Jesus. He is life. He is life. He is the author of life. He is the giver of life. And yet, as a man, he came, he lived, and he died. He experienced death. He took upon himself the sting of death, and he died. And then he rose, and he defeated death. So the point is, if you want to know the truth about life and death, this is your man. This is your source. This is your authority. Don't listen to anybody who contradicts the words of Christ on this topic. Don't do it. I don't care how many degrees they have after their name. I don't care how many books they've written. I don't care what they have claimed to have experienced. I don't claim how uh, care how popular they are, how many daytime television show appearances they have made. They don't know what they're talking about. Jesus knows what he's talking about. Jesus is the living one. He is the one, as he says to John, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. He knows about life and death. He understands our fear and the realities that we face. And he alone is able to say, don't fear. You don't need to be afraid. I've conquered sin and death for you. Jesus, in John 17, when he was praying to the Father, made this remarkable statement. He said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That is eternal life, knowing Christ, being in Christ. And so as we come to the Lord's table this morning, this is what we celebrate, our union with him. We, like John, don't have to be afraid. John, Jesus has conquered sin and death for, for us. But before we come to the Lord's table, one last verse in verse 19, Jesus says to John, I love this, write, therefore. Okay, what's the therefore, therefore? Well, in light of my victory, in light of the fact that I'm the living one, I'm the first and the last, in light of the fact that I have done all of this right, right what? Right the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. Please note this on your outline. Jesus again instructs John to write, and he maps out, or he outlines, if you will, this revelation. So, what is John going to write? First, he's going to record what he has seen thus far. Jesus says, write, therefore, the things that you have seen. This is the picture of Christ that John has just recorded. He can't leave that out. It's important. It's beneficial for us. It's good for the church to see and to know. Second, John is going to write about the things that are. Those that are. This is the current condition of the seven churches. We will cover this in chapters 2 to 3. And then lastly... John is going to write about those things that, quote, are to take place after this. And this refers to 
future events, things that are yet to happen. This is why chapter 4 begins with this transitional phrase. It begins, it introduces this new future uh, uh, section of Revelation. We read this in Revelation 4.1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, so that's Jesus' voice, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Jesus wants to show John what is yet to happen. What is yet, what must take place in unfolding and revealing the Father's will and the Father's plan. This is Jesus' outline for the book of Revelation. This is what Jesus says will be shown here, will be covered here. Why? Because Jesus wants us to know, he wants us to understand his comprehensive victory. Jesus wants us to know and understand his complete sovereignty, his authority, the glory of his grace. And it is to the grace of Christ the kindness of Christ, the glory of Christ, that we now turn our attention as we come to the Lord's table to again remember and celebrate the victory of Christ.